Welcome to the Afternoon Light Summer Series produced by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this summer series, you will hear presentations from our November 22 conference on Coming to Power, Learning to Govern and Gathering Momentum 1943-54. to In today's episode, you will hear from Troy Bramston on Robert Menzies' The Art of Power, followed by Charles Richardson on Menzies' Evett and Constitutional Government. Well, I'm going to talk about Robert Menzies and the art of power, which is essentially how he governed and the lessons that he learned, which enabled him to be a successful prime minister for a long period of time. So when Robert Menzies led the Liberal Party and country parties back to power in 1949, he had demonstrated an ability to master the art of politics, but had yet to master the art of governing. Menzies had lost power in 1941 when he was effectively forced out of the prime ministership. But in 1949, he was now back in the prime ministerial office. He had to learn how to effectively lead a government and a cabinet and a party. So I want to examine how Menzies understood, gained and applied the art of power. In other words, how Menzies governed as a prime minister and party leader in the years after returning to government in 1949. This is a subject that I examined in my biography of Menzies published in 2019. This, I think, is an underappreciated aspect of the Menzies government, his life and his legacy, because the model that he established in these early years would be followed for the rest of his prime ministership. So in this paper, I want to examine how Menzies' office was structured and how it operated, how he led the cabinet and his relationship with key ministers, how he worked with the public service, how he conceived the relationship with the country party and worked with its leaders, and how Menzies managed the Liberal Party both its organisational and parliamentary wings. Menzies had clear values, policies and principles that he took to successive elections and he could communicate these clearly and often very persuasively. But none of this often matters if you don't know how to grease the wheels of government to work in your favour to achieve outcomes. So mastering the machinery of government and the relationship with the party room is critical for prime ministerial success. So this paper does draw on my biography of Menzies and will refer to archival records from Menzies' papers and my interviews with his former ministers and MPs, such as Doug Anthony, Jim Forbes, Ian Sinclair and Malcolm Fraser, his personal staff, William Heseltine and Tony Eggleton, party official and later minister John Carrick and his daughter Heather Henderson. So on Thursday, 15 December 1949, Menzies travelled to Canberra on an early flight. It was a busy day. He had already spoken to Ben Chifley, the outgoing Prime Minister, and they met in person for a cup of tea. Menzies met with Alan Brown, the head of the Prime Minister's department, and invited him to continue in the role. And he met with Governor-General William McKell, who invited Menzies to form a government. And that government was sworn in the following Monday, 19 December. The Prime Minister's suite was located in the northeastern corner of Parliament House. There were two small offices for his personal secretary and his department head next to his office. There was a lobby area, several administrative cubbyholes for typists, messengers, attendants, and also a small bathroom. In the early 1950s, Menzies' staff comprised just a private secretary, a personal secretary, a press secretary, three typists, two messengers, and an attendant or two. Keep in mind that Anthony Albanese's office has more than 50 staff. His wood panelled office was adorned with photos of the royal family, 
cricketers and landscape paintings. Hansards and volumes of Shakespeare sat on the shelves. He always used pencils to draft speeches and statements, but of course he signed official papers with a fountain pen. He did not like to use the phone, often held it at an arm's length from his head, and he often summoned staff to his office with a small bell. He smoked about half a dozen cigars during the day, and in the evenings he liked to share drinks with staff, MPs and public servants in the cabinet anteroom. Menzies usually worked a 70-hour week. He did not like early starts and he rarely arrived at the office before 10am, but he routinely worked until about 11pm. He read newspapers at the lodge over breakfast with Dame Patty before being driven to Parliament House. He sometimes went home for lunch or dinner and returned to the office later. His day would begin by meeting with his private secretary, J.R. Bob Willoughby, who first occupied that post. Menzies' prime ministerial staff, mostly drawn from the public service, of about eight or nine in the early years, grew to about 12 in 1966. William Heseltine was private secretary from 1955 to 1959. Heseltine recalled Menzies being warm, generous and kind, quite unlike the public stereotype. But he was also shy. And one of the implications of Menzies' shyness, Heseltine argued, was that he tended to criticise people behind their back. Heseltine regarded this as a weakness of character. Tony Eggleton worked as Menzies' press secretary from 1965 to 1966. He recalled his old boss being informal and kindly to staff and public servants as well. He said Menzies was open to ideas and welcomed advice he may not always agree with. Let's talk about the cabinet and the ministry. So as Liberal leader, Menzies was able to appoint ministers without party room election. Of course, he took into consideration experience, ability, age, geography, and he had to negotiate with the country party. And so the construction of the first Menzies ministry in 1949 is quite constructive. In Menzies' papers is his own handwritten list of appointments. He consulted with Arthur Fadden, who would be the most senior minister after the prime minister as treasurer in 1949. Deputy Liberal leader Eric Harrison was given defence and post-war reconstruction. Menzies was magnanimous in victory and offered positions to critics and rivals, including Earl Page, Richard Casey and Thomas White. Other ministers included Harold Holt, John McEwen and Enid Lyons as Vice President of the Executive Council, but she was not given a portfolio, something which irritated her for many years after. The only amendment to Menzies' original handwritten list was to strike out works and housing from Philip McBride's portfolio and give that to Richard Casey. So in the end, there were 13 Liberals and five country party MPs in the Cabinet. Menzies was very close to his first deputy leader, Eric Harrison. When Menzies lost the Prime Ministership in 1941, he had named Harrison as one of only three people who maintained their resolute friendship with him and was steadfastly loyal. He was not as close to Harold Holt, who succeeded Harrison as deputy leader and was long seen as heir apparent. Menzies later recalled that Holt wanted to be loved and judged his prime ministership to be a bitter disappointment. Heather Henderson, Menzies' daughter, recalled that he liked Holt but did not have huge respect for him. Menzies generally got on well with country party leader Arthur Fadden, the former prime minister who was appointed treasurer, but was alert to his fondness for late night drinking. Legendary public servant Lennox Hewitt told me that Menzies actually had a degree of contempt for Fadden. I'm not so sure about that. But the Prime Minister got on very well with Fadden's successor, John McEwen, and would have liked to have seen McEwen become a permanent Prime Minister. Menzies thought McEwen was by far the best minister in his cabinet. He also greatly admired Paul Hasluck, 
and preferred him over John Gordon as Holt's successor. Menzies later said that he had very little regard for Richard Casey and Percy Spender, both political rivals, and viewed them as too ambitious or self-promoting. Menzies named the two greatest sources of prime ministerial power as being the capacity to lead and influence the creation of policy in Cabinet and being the government's chief public relations officer in the public realm. Cabinet, therefore, was a key institution for the exercise of prime ministerial power and authority. Menzies had natural advantages in Cabinet. He had a large physical size, which meant that he could be imposing. He was undoubtedly intelligent. He had experience in previous Cabinets at the state and federal level. He'd been a Prime Minister, and he had a capacity to make a persuasive argument. So all of these things mattered in the dynamics of the Cabinet room. And ministers also owed a personal loyalty to Menzies, given he had appointed them and had led the party back to power. Enid Lyons argued that Menzies' personal aura and stature had a quite intimidating, inhibiting effect on other ministers. However, this is not widely shared by other ministers. Despite his dominance, Menzies recalled that Menzies did not always get his way in Cabinet. Frank Jennings, who served as Menzies' private secretary from 1963 to 1966, recalled him losing a Cabinet debate to John McEwen. He promptly left the meeting, returned to his office, and reached for a volume of Shakespeare to compose himself. Then, after about a half an hour or so in the Prime Ministerial office, he returned to the Cabinet meeting and resumed the business. Nevertheless, Menzies was an effective chair of Cabinet who allowed ministers to have their say and a free reign to work their portfolios, but he could be ruthless with those he judged to be poor performers. Doug Anthony, who first met Menzies as a boy when his father was a Member of Parliament, told me that the Prime Minister was consultative in Cabinet but could be brutal with ministers who were not across their brief. Anthony said, he could be difficult, arrogant and proud when trying to get a decision to go one way or another. Menzies used to make people look like a fool if they were not on top of their portfolio. Anthony also thought Menzies sometimes enjoyed this. Ian Sinclair, the last surviving minister from the Menzies era, recalled that Dame Patty took a close interest in the development of Canberra. She would not hesitate to complain to her husband about the garbage not being collected, the power going off or the footpaths not being up to scratch. And of course, this would be the number one item on Cabinet the next day. Jim Forbes, the last surviving Liberal minister from the Menzies government, remembered that Menzies' support to ministers in difficulty, like when he was introducing national service, was absolute. Menzies would stick with you, he said, no matter what. Richard Nixon said to be a good leader, you have to be a good butcher. But Menzies was reluctant to sack ministers, although he did remove Billy Ken Hughes and Les Berry for contradicting government policy. Menzies despised Billy McMahon, later referring to him as a fool and a worm, and in 1959, Menzies caught McMahon leaking cabinet secrets and extracted a signed confession. Now, this was part of Menzies' law, legend, that he had this signed confession. But that document, which Menzies kept in a desk drawer for many years, can actually be found in the National Archives of Australia. Why Menzies didn't sack McMahon can only be guessed. Perhaps it was because of McMahon's status in the New South Wales division of the party or his closeness to the Packer family or both. An important innovation in cabinet governance was the introduction of an outer ministry in 1956. This provided the opportunity to give younger and newer MPs an opportunity to climb the ministerial ranks. But Menzies actually did little to promote promising MPs such as Bill Wentworth, Joe Gullett, Bert Kelly, Jim Killen, Don Shipp and Malcolm Fraser. 
Fraser actually told me that he asked Menzies to be promoted to the ministry after the 1961 and 1963 elections, but he was unmoved. While Menzies was dominant in cabinet, especially towards the end of his prime ministership, he was actually out of step on a few views, issues with his own ministers. He resisted attempts by his ministers, by cabinet submissions, to change the white Australia policy, expand the Aboriginal referendum, or take a stronger stand against apartheid in South Africa. And after he retired in 1966, the cabinet actually moved pretty swiftly to change course in these policy areas. Yeah, I think it's a testament to Menzies' dominance that he carried the day on these issues when he was probably in a minority. In terms of the parliamentary party, Menzies' time in state politics and his first prime ministership, which ended in resignation, was actually never far from mine before the party's 1949 election triumph within the party's councils. The earlier Menzies had poor relations with many colleagues. And of course, when Menzies was told by an MP that he did not suffer fools gladly, he famously replied, and what, pray, do you think I'm doing now? He acknowledged, of course, that he had to change. He said, I might have succeeded better if I had worked less in my office and more in the party room, he later reflected. He recognised the need to work more collegiately with others and be less brisk and overbearing. While leading the Liberal Party to victory in 1949 gave Menzies authority in the new government, he had to earn the trust and respect of his colleagues to be truly effective long term. The result was that Menzies was dominant in the parliamentary party room after 1949. But Menzies revealed in interviews for a biography that was never written that he did not feel secure in the leadership until at least the 1949 election. Menzies actually resigned as Liberal leader in 1947 and demanded the party get behind him. You can't win with Menzies was a common refrain. Menzies recalled that some in the party wanted to replace him before the 1949 election with Don Bradman or Tom Playford. Richard Casey was often mentioned as an alternative leader. And after 1949, there were occasional reports of a potential leadership challenge from Percy Spender during 1950 and 1951, although that's very unlikely. He was attentive to the needs of backbenchers, and any MP who wanted a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Menzies would get this with little fuss. Alec Downer recalled that in party room meetings, Menzies listened more than he talked. He allowed backbenchers to raise policy matters and would respond if necessary but few MPs ever challenged Menzies. The dividend of political success was party room loyalty. He was calm, consensus-driven, consultative, and if challenged, he refused to be aroused to anger in party room meetings, quite unlike his earlier prime ministership. Menzies was skilled at parliamentary procedure. He understood the importance of winning debates in parliament, and he knew how to use the chamber for dramatic purposes. He was a born performer, but he also took notes of how others performed in parliament. At the commencement of question time, Menzies would often take a blank piece of paper and draw up a scorecard to rate his ministers. At the end of question time, Menzies would fold and tear the paper into tiny little pieces and then with a raised eyebrow and a slight smile, drop it into the bin so that nobody ever knew what his assessment was. Menzies also understood the, the importance of party organisation and party management. He developed an effective relationship with the party organisation and he respected the party membership. John Carrick, a true gentleman of politics, gave me a unique perspective on Menzies and the Liberal Party in its formative years. In his last interview, Carrick said that in the 1940s, Menzies had real enemies and there were substantial doubts about his capacity to lead the party effectively. So again, Menzies knew he had to change and he did. Menzies' appointment books and correspondence revealed that he was regularly in contact with party organisational leaders about campaign strategy, policy development, personnel, candidates.
And having been the most important figure in the formation of the party, its structure, philosophy and character, this interest in the organisational wing of the party was, of course, understandable. Menzies also understood the importance of managing the coalition with the country party. He had learned from bitter experience in Victorian politics and later in federal politics, especially when he was prime minister, about the importance of effective relationship with the country party. And so an agreement with the country party to cooperate with the Liberal Party in government was actually agreed before the 1949 election. Menzies respected the country party's leaders and their views, and he made sure that any disagreements over policy, political strategy and ministerial appointments were satisfactorily dealt with. Menzies revealed that compromise was the key to this relationship, and it went both ways. When he rejected a country party MP being made a minister, another person would be found. And when McEwen had a strong objection to a matter of policy, an alternative way was always found to go forward. The last area I want to briefly touch on is the public service. Menzies, of course, respected the public service. He expected Frankenfield's advice from public servants, and he did welcome it. He kept on many of the senior public servants who had worked for the Curtin-Shifley government, such as Alan Brown, who I mentioned earlier. The Prime Minister's Department, which was first established in 1911, steadily grew as a coordinating and leadership agency within government and was tasked with specific responsibilities. It continued to expand its influence in government during Menzies' prime ministership, which helped to consolidate Menzies' prime ministerial authority within government. The department played a key role in better organising and supporting cabinet meetings. Menzies, for the first time as prime minister, was given briefings on every other submission by ministers, which also undoubtedly strengthened his authority in cabinet meetings. So in conclusion, Menzies appreciated the virtues of cabinet government. He respected the public service. He worked collegially with ministers and government MPs. He was a good administrator of government who was disciplined and focused and had an efficient personal office. He was a good party manager and he understood the importance of striking a good relationship with the country party. Menzies, like any prime minister, endured setbacks and had to reverse course occasionally on policy, but he always learned and improved in the job, something which I think is always the essential mark of a good politician. After Menzies informed the UAP party room and then the joint party room of his decision to resign as prime minister in 1941, he joined his private secretary Cecil Looker in the corridor. Menzies put his arm around Looker's shoulders and said, I have been done. And with tears in his eyes, he quoted the famous Scottish ballad, I'll lay me down and bleed a while, and then I'll rise and fight again. He did rise again, and his success the second time round was largely due to his mastering of the art of politics and power. So this paper, I hope, has provided some insight into Menzies' governing style. And these lessons, I think, given the experiences faced by recent prime ministers, could not be timelier. Thank you. Georgina, and thank you, everyone. I'd just like to start, if I may, by noting how much we miss the presence of John Nethercote, who sadly passed away earlier this year. A number of you would have known him much better than I did, but I know he had a great interest in some of the things I'm going to talk about today, and I very much look forward to bouncing some ideas off him, which sadly is not possible. My theme is the role of Menzies in the development of parliamentary government in Australia. I propose to look at some of the key events in the middle part of his career that we're focusing on that bear on the constitutional question and using as a foil for 
those the views of H.V. Evatt, whom he faced across the chamber for many years, but who was also a noted constitutional scholar. So parliamentary government involves having executive power in the hands of ministers who are appointed by and govern nominally in the name of the head of state, but who are responsible to the elected parliament. So it involves a balance of power between three centres, the head of state, the ministers, and the parliament. It's the system that evolved in England gradually over centuries and since has spread around the world. The head of state usually is either a hereditary monarch or a president elected directly or indirectly. But in Australia, we have a different setup because the monarch is a ceremonial head of state, but our effective head of state is a viceroy, a nominee of the monarch, either a governor general or in the states a governor. He represents the monarch, but is appointed and therefore has neither the predictability of hereditary succession nor the democratic mandate of an election. So in addition to that three-way balance that I talked about, in Australia we have a sort of four-way interaction between the government, the viceroy, the monarch, and the home government, in our case the government in Britain, to whom the monarch normally relates. By the time Menzies and Everett were born, they were born in fact in the same year, 1894, the first of those, that three-way balance of parliamentary government, was pretty much settled. There's been a bit of movement at the margins, but fundamentally a prime minister today, whether in Britain or in Australia, stands in the same relationship to parliament and monarch as Gladstone and Salisbury did to Queen Victoria. The second set of relationships, though, involving the Viceroy and the home government, have changed a great deal. When Federation was first established, Australia and other similar British possessions, which were known collectively as dominions, were regarded as self-governing but not fully independent of Britain. They were part of the empire, and the imperial government, that is the British government in London, had a sort of ill-defined overall responsibility for them, and particularly for matters that concern foreign affairs and defence. And the status of the Governor-General reflected that. He, they, they were always men, of course, was appointed by the monarch on the advice of the British government. And in addition to his duties under the Australian Constitution, he was the representative of the British government here. Australia didn't have diplomats of its own. As late as 1939, Menzies was still fighting a rearguard action against appointing Australian diplomats. Instead, the government communicated with Britain via the Governor-General. The First World War revealed some of the shortcomings of those arrangements. During the 1920s, there were discussions between Britain and the Dominions, ultimately leading to an imperial conference in 1926 and passage of the Statute of Westminster, I'm sure you've heard of, in 1931, to redefine the imperial relationship in a way that was intended to ensure that the Dominions were autonomous communities within the British Empire, equal in status, in no way subordinate, I'm quoting from the Balfour Declaration, in no way subordinate one to another in any aspect of their domestic or external affairs, although united by a common allegiance to the Crown and freely associated as members of the British Commonwealth of Nations. By that time, of course, Menzies and Everett were both significant players, so we'll break off to say some, a little bit about them. You've already heard a lot about Menzies today, but I want to pick out four things that I think are important in understanding him in this context. Firstly, he's a royalist. That's very obvious, persists throughout his career. As Nethercote puts it, his faith in the crown was not simply formal and professional, it was deeply personal as well. 
Second, he's an Anglophile, not in the sense of being un-Australian, but like many of his time, he sees no conflict between British and Australian patriotism. You can be both. Thirdly, he's a Whig, by which I mean he identifies with Parliament in the history of its struggles with the Crown. Nethercote again, in fact, they're the opening word of his 2016 essay on the subject. By education and experience, Robert Menzies was steeped in the traditions of responsible parliamentary government, mainly as developed at Westminster. There's a lovely passage in his diary when he visits England for the first time in 1935, and of course he wants to see a whole lot of historical sites, but he sees them from the Whig point of view. And in one point he refers to Oliver Cromwell as the man whose sword and character made England a free country, which is the last thing that a Tory would ever say. So I think that's an important point to understand. The fourth point is, might seem obvious, but he leads a centre-right party. So whatever his instincts on a particular issue, in general terms of a sort of conflict between progress and reaction, the party that he's in is the party of reaction. He might not be personally a reactionary, but they're on his side, or he's on their side. A little bit about Evert. Evert was a High Court judge. At the age of 36, he's still the youngest ever appointed, later leader of the Labour Party, the author in the 1930s, published in 1936, of the standard work on the powers of the Crown in relation to responsible government, called The King and His Dominion Governors. The Labour Party's sort of self-image, of which Evert's book reflects, held it to be the progressive or democratic force in constitutional matters, supporting Australian independence versus the imperial connection. But that said, Evert's book is by no means an anti-imperial tract. His main argument is that regal and vice-regal powers are poorly defined. The conventions that govern them should be made explicit and enforceable either by the courts or by the legislature. He's conscious of the problem that if British control is excluded, then the viceroy could have too much independence. And he's also conscious of the problem of a lack of security of tenure for the Governor-General, which we'll come back to a little bit later. Fundamentally, Evert is a rationalist. He's always looking for clarity and transparency in institutions, whereas Menzies has a bit more of the conservative's instinct for mystery, for the power of things unknown or unseen. So, back to the 1930s. In 1937, Menzies is Attorney General, and he brings in a bill to adopt the Statute of Westminster. It's not proceeded with, apparently due to dissension on his own side as to whether that's the right way to go. By 1942, Menzies, as we know, is in opposition. War has broken out. Evert has left the High Court and entered Parliament and is now Attorney General and Foreign Affairs Minister in the Labour government. And he introduces a similar bill to adopt the Statute of Westminster. And again, the non-Labour side is divided. I won't go into this because it's outside our time period. But if you get a chance, it's well worth reading the debate on Statute of Westminster adoption. Because Menzies is sort of trapped halfway between Everett and the government's position and the more diehard imperialists in his own party. But as he explains his position, both in Parliament and in one of his radio broadcasts, he says that he has a problem with the Statute of Westminster because, I quote, it endeavoured to put into written form a relation, part of whose strength rested upon its very vagueness and want of definition. There was a living spirit, and we endeavoured to imprison it within the four corners of a legal formula. And clearly, 
while he phrases it in those sort of terms about ambiguity and about is this really necessary, it's clear he also objects to the whole idea that the crown can be divisible. The idea that the crown in right of Australia actually has a different legal personality from the crown in right of the United Kingdom. As he also sort of acknowledges, the boat's already sailed on that one. The Imperial Conference of 1926 has decided that and Australia has to live with it. So the bill is passed, the war is won, Menzies returns as leader of the opposition, and in 1946, Chifley has to choose a new Governor-General. And his choice, it's always been Labor policy, but Governor-General should be an Australian. Chifley chooses William McKell, who at the time was the Labor Premier of New South Wales. Menzies attacks that in very strong terms. He says, Labor has chosen to force upon His Majesty by depriving him of any other choice one who in the nature of things will be regarded by Australians generally not as a representative of the king, but as a representative of the present prime minister. He implicitly threatened to have McKell sacked if the Liberals won the next election. And he quotes Evert in support of this. Evert, of course, thinks it's a good thing that an Australian should be appointed on the advice of Australian ministers. But in the king and his dominion governors, he had expressed concern that if the monarch has no discretion in the matter, then incoming governments will find it convenient to have the current viceroy dismissed and replaced by their own nominee. And therefore, I quote, the office of Governor General will become a mere reflection of the existing Dominion administration and consequently no exercise of any reserve power will take place. And Menzies echoes that, saying that with every change of government, the appointment of the Governor General would be terminated and some other politician put in his place. Everett declined to rise to the bait in Parliament at the time. He spoke in the debate but didn't talk about the Governor-General. And in the end, the McKell episode does show Menzies in a better light, because having made his political point, once McKell was in office, he was courteous and correct to him, in contrast to some Liberal MPs, and they worked together well. A.W. Martin, Menzies' biographer, says that in due course, Menzies came to follow this elementary courtesy with genuine respect for McKell's dignity and complete impartiality. Then, 1949, and as you all know, Menzies returned to power. I want to look at four episodes from that period in power, although we'll have time for briefly considering the last two. I know Georgina is watching me with the clock. Firstly, the double dissolution of 1951. The Chifley government in its last term had reformed the Senate voting system, producing the more evenly balanced Senate results that we're used to. That meant that Labor retained a substantial Senate majority after the 1949 election, and that majority proceeded to give Menzies some trouble with his government's legislation, although it did so cautiously because it was reluctant to give him an excuse for a double dissolution. For that reason, it eventually allowed through the legislation to dissolve the Communist Party, which was later struck down by the High Court. But in the case of another bill, the Commonwealth Bank Bill of 1950, the Senate first passed it with amendments that were unacceptable to the government, and then when it was presented a second time, after the three-month interval, delayed debate on it for some weeks, then referred it to a select committee. Menzies formed the view that this amounted to a failure to pass within the meaning of Section 57 and asked Governor-General McKell to approve a double dissolution. And this is the classic case of where the Viceroy is often said to have an independent discretion as to whether to accept such a request. And Menzies' admirers have often pointed out that he recognised that and did not try to coerce McKell. But if you look at the actual advice that Menzies eventually tabled some years later in Parliament, that discretion is somewhat illusory. Yes, he told McKell that he had to make up his own mind on the question of whether the 
legal requirements of Section 57 had been met, that is, whether the Senate had failed to pass the bill. But that was the only discretion he admitted. He gave no hint of a suggestion that once McKell was satisfied that the legal requirements for the double dissolution had been made out, he had any right to form his own judgment about whether it was a good idea or not. And McKell, despite his Labor background, accepted Menzies' advice. So although Labor was understandably unhappy with that double dissolution, which went on to cost it control of the Senate, Menzies' practice, in fact, was completely consistent with the lessons that Everett had drawn in his book from his analysis of the only previous double dissolution in 1914, of which the key one was that so long as the conditions mentioned in Section 57 are complied with, the Governor-General will grant a double dissolution to ministers who possess the confidence of the House of Representatives. John Howard, who is by no means unsympathetic to Menzies, says that McKell was sworn to observe the conventions of his office, which required him to take the advice of his Prime Minister unless it were manifestly wrong, which in this case it clearly was not. The second noteworthy occasion was the following year with the selection of McKell's replacement as Governor-General. Menzies had repented of his personal hostility. That didn't stop him reverting to the practice of making it a British appointment rather than an Australian one. He went to Britain in 1942 when Queen Elizabeth was very new to the throne. Again, something rather Whiggish in his sort of patronising attitude to the Queen, but their discussions related in the appointment of another Englishman, William Slim, who was a hero of the Second World War. And John Howard comments that that was where the practice of appointing British citizens to the post should have ended. But Menzies would do it twice more. And indeed, he did. Lord Dunrossell in 1960, and after he died in office, Viscount Delisle in 1961. And there's the same deference to Britain. As Nethercote put it, they all met a criterion that Menzies considered essential for the appointment. The Queen knew them. Menzies did eventually accept the need for an Australian with the appointment of Lord Casey, his former foreign minister, in 1965. He stuck to his guns on the idea that no serving politician should be appointed, and he criticised albeit privately, the appointment of Paul Haslock in 1969 on that basis, although whether he cared more about the principle itself or the need to preserve his own consistency is impossible to say. I could talk about a couple of other things. The Royal Powers Bill of 1953, where, again, Menzies and Ebert face off in the House, but the constitutional argument has clearly died down. It's a very calm debate, and no one else even bothers to speak on it. And also, the early election of 1955, Menzies has come very close to defeat in 1954, so he's working with a narrow majority. He goes to Governor-General Slim and asks for an early election. Again, no suggestion that Slim has any discretion in the matter. Slim followed his advice, as has every Governor-General since. What lessons can we draw from all of this? I want to mention four very quickly. First, politics is hard, okay? Time and again, politicians, especially when they're in government, find themselves having to say and do things that don't sit very well with the doctrines they've espoused in the past. That's politics. Second, as some other speakers have suggested, Menzies is both more complex and more interesting than you might think from the caricatured version of him that's often presented from either supporters or opponents. Thirdly, Australian constitutionalism has an importance that goes beyond this country. Together with the other dominions, Australia showed in both federal and state experience that parliamentary government could develop peacefully and work effectively even without a hereditary monarch or an elected head of state. And finally, the problem that Everett pointed out of the insecurity of tenure of the Viceroy is still with us. It was an underlying presence in the crisis of 1975 when John Kerr felt that he needed to act quickly and secretly for fear that otherwise he would be dismissed. The worst fears haven't been realised 
incoming governments have never thought it necessary to wipe the slate clean. And the fact that we managed to live with such problems can be put down to the fact that most of the time, our political class have shared a commitment to playing by the rules and also a broad agreement on what those rules are. And for that, I suggest both Menzies and Everett deserve a share of the credit. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from the presenters at our 2022 conference on this summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. To hear more from the Robert Menzies Institute, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.